0: All right. Our sponsor today is GLSA. For those non-members who may be listening in, GLSA, or Group Legal Services Association, is a professional membership organization representing the legal services plan industry and provider attorneys. And joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. Check it out at glsaonline.org. All right. My name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. Our podcast Today is Blockchain for Law, An Entrepreneur's Journey with Stevie Gyasi. I'm very excited to introduce you to today's guest. Uh, Stevie is the CEO and co-founder of Legaler, an Australian company focusing on expanding access to justice through technology. He was the founding president of Alta, that's the Australian Legal Technology Association, and is the project founder for the Global Legal Tech Report. Welcome, Stevie.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on. Um, You and I have talked a number of times. I've been very impressed by your energy and uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And I I really want to talk about that as well as the whole uh, blockchain thing. But the first thing I want to start out with, because I know you've, I've seen you around everywhere around the globe, um, Australia, Europe, U.S. and everywhere in between. Where do you call home now?
1: Well, I'm currently joining the call from uh, beautiful uh, Williamsburg in Brooklyn. So I'm in New York and the uh, the new Legal HQ is based out of uh, New York, but we're essentially uh, a pretty global and distributed company. Uh, my co-founder is in Perth, but home is really uh, Sydney, Australia. And that's where I, where I grew up.
0: Sweet. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that I've been talking to more and more um in interviews have been working that way like uh one of the last guests we had tessa manuelo she basically calls home wherever her hotel is
1: <laughs> so yeah, the world's becoming a, yeah the world's becoming a pretty small place and you know uh we kind of eat our own dog food in terms of uh we've created a communication platform for lawyers and clients so we we are communicating that a lot we use different types of collaboration tools um, we're very mindful to not create, I guess, a second-class kind of citizen for someone else in the team. Uh, but we are, we are also trying to build a hub. And I think you need a bit of both uh, studying some of the, the best companies, um, you know, like um, the guys that created Basecamp. They essentially all create somewhat of a hub so uh, other team members can get indoctrinated into the culture, the systems, but then essentially you can work in the way that's best for your lifestyle, whether that's being by the beach or in another city, um, you know, and that, that's really, I think, something that the technologies uh, fostered quite well.
0: And I love that you mentioned Basecamp. I mean, uh, Jason Fried is a big hero of mine. I, I love uh, that company and well started out as 37 Signals and everything that they've done in uh, kind of fostering a decentralized uh, business model.
1: And that's where uh, you know, we've got developers all around the world, and especially with some of the projects we've got uh, coming up on the horizon with, with the blockchain. Um, well, again, it's really tapping into a global talent pool. So I think that you give yourself that luxury where you can find the best talent across the world as opposed to just in a city where it often is quite competitive, where New York and um, San Francisco, where you've got a lot of tech talent and a lot of uh, VC capital it's also quite competitive and also quite an expensive city to live so myself i'm actually set up uh bi-coastally now and looking to set up a base in europe and again bouncing back and forwards between um australia so we have an AltaCon conference in may so i'll be heading back to uh to sydney then wow lots of long
0: uh flights i imagine
1: yeah lots of that uh, actually i find it quite relaxing it's actually my favorite time to um i'm always torn between switching on the wi-fi you, you, you feel this sense of calm. And you actually have uh, quite deep and, um, uh, I guess, creative thoughts, and you're probably operating on a different <laughs> wavelength, lots, lots more alpha waves. But yeah, so I'm always torn between: do I need to do work, or do I just zone out and watch movies, or do I, you know, try and change the world from you know thirty thousand feet?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so one thing before we get into the kind of the heart of the like legal tech blockchain discussion, I, I definitely. Want to learn more about you, and I'm sure the people listening do too. So, if if you could tell me a little bit about your story, like where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, so uh, my father was the a pretty big influence in my life, and he was the captain of his national football team uh, in Iran, and and traveled to Australia to play for the Australian team in the 70s, and ended up uh, loving it so much that he set up shop there. So I was fortunate to be. Uh, I really feel like it was a lottery ticket to be born in in such a beautiful place um, in Sydney, Australia. Growing up by the beach, really, Australia is quite isolated from you know no com- common borders, no um, you know typically no warfare or, or you know we're joining other people's wars, but we we um we have a pretty good political system. So it's really a, a great place where um, the quality of life, good social welfare system, too. The quality of life is really good. Um, we are quite far away from the world, but again, we've had um, you know exposure to lots of things for a long time, um, whether it's Western TV and all the rest. So we really get the best of both both worlds. And it was a great place to grow up. Um, and I think the the one common thread for me was always wanting to build stuff. Um, my father was a, um, an entrepreneur his whole life. And, um, you know, I, I was the kind of kid that would pick apart the, the Christmas presents or the birthday presents and undo them all and then put them back together in something else and, you know, pull the motors out of the cars and all that type of thing. So I think I was very always fascinated by how things worked and I always wanted to, to, to build stuff and got a lot of satisfaction that way. Uh, but if, if someone had asked me when I was younger what I wanted to be, the answer was always generally um, an electrician, actually. Um, mm. That was, I think, again, that fascination with how things work. Um, and I'd drag my parents to the toy shop and, and point out in the window the the electronic Kind of, you know, motherboards and and all those types of tools that you can rewire stuff, and so that was really an early fascination. And I guess if I look back, I think that's been the common thread, whether it's building a brand, uh, building a concept, um, and and that's something that I think with legal, it's just taking a different shape. And, and software, I guess you get a lot of different opportunities to build different things, whether it's you know something to use a test, whether it's a concept, um, you know, artwork, um, and and the actual you know architecture of the platform. It's actually um, really invigorating that way, where there's no boundaries. So that was the, um, the early days. It's that curiosity. It sounds to me
0: like that curiosity was just innate in you when you were a kid.
1: It was. And I think just, again, going back to my, um, my father, he, he, was, he was a great role model where he, he just led by example. He didn't kind of whip us into shape too much, whether it was in the sporting pursuits or you know, um, you know, career-wise or university. And we had quite an unusual path in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he did everything from like the milk runs the paper runs and eventually, you know, built a, a multi-million dollar business that, um, you know, I, I grew up in. So, um, it was a, wow. it was a great way to to be exposed to, to that. And also again, with the athletic side, that also, he never really, although he was like the Beckham of, you know, his own country back there, very popular figure and, you know, still people I bump into, whether it's in LA or all over the world, they still, you know, remember him. Um, it's, it's really, um, it was just by example that he just really set the bar really high. So my brother and I both uh, pursued sport full-time and we moved and travelled around the world playing tennis from a very young age. So that was also, I think, something that he just wanted us to do because he knew the discipline and the life lessons that he, it uh, dispelled. And mm-hmm. so uh, for us, um, he was just very, um, you know, he's a very supportive figure. Even with legal, he's, he's a chairman, so he's in the background kind of um, uh, along for the journey as well, which is, which is great to have that relationship um, after, after so many years. But then the, uh, the again the entrepreneurial stuff was that, that curiosity it was always like um, will this work does the world need this um, how do you sell it and I think that's been um, something that I, I got to wear a lot of different hats from a very young age and I was managing lots of people at a very young age and um, I you know took over the, the, that business and was able to grow into you know forty million dollar uh, a year um, uh, I guess retail group. And that was something that was a great platform for anything else I wanted to do and, you know, spun off different businesses off the back of that. If you could
0: tell me a little bit about that that early experience you have with being an entrepreneur, uh, what this company that you mentioned, is is that's your father's company that you were coming on to? Yeah. So,
1: so that, that, that's, um, you know, a good example was uh, the, the timing in the late 80s, early 90s, where Tourism in Australia, uh, it was a confluence of things. The tourism in Australia exploded. It was also creating a new industry, which was uh, basically a, the souvenir industry and gifts. And based, basically, uh, you had a Japanese economy that was like extremely successful and growing, like mm. maybe like no other growing grown at modern time. And so right. the, the confluence of all these things coming together and uh, it just grew so rapidly. At, it's a bit like a startup where you kind of at you know, the analogy of building a plane while you're flying it. Where there was right. no hard and fast rule, it was really um, th- there was no uh, playbook for this type of thing, and 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 business really grew like crazy. Before um, you know, it was too competitive, and we had a real monopoly, I guess, on on, on the state of things where we had so many uh, tourists coming through. And again, Sydney is a, an amazing uh, place for this as well, with the harbor. We had some prime retail locations, and, and then off the back of that, we created manufacturing for for our own goods because we, we were selling so many of those products uh, we started currency exchanges because they were servicing obviously so much of this foreign currency that was coming through uh retail photo lab so photo development because you had so many japanese tourists coming through of all, of all countries but japanese were the most prominent but oh. um you know so, so it was really all these supplementary businesses that grew off the back of it and we were able to increase our our margins because we started producing a lot of this so we set up factories in new zealand we're creating you know sheepskin jackets our leather goods um you know uh selling when the Olympics came, uh, I don't think I've ever seen my father jump so high. When, when I remember, I'll never forget being down at the uh, at Sydney Harbour in the rocks, and there was a big screen, and the city was you know filled with excitement, and there were um one Antonio Samaranch was announcing the winner and. For us it was just you know it was obviously a, a commercial uh silver lining so when that got announced that sydney had won this was the hugest party i just never forget how many uh feet off the ground that um <laughs> my old man <laughs> kind of elevated but uh, you know after the uh, the actual olympic village we were the largest uh, seller of of these goods and so um interestingly there's some funny uh not funny but i guess like um they're entertaining now to, to reflect back on there's some real interesting and and landmark lawsuits that my um, father was involved with that he never really went after anyone commercially in that sense it was always basically um, you know uh, based on principle or someone just maybe you know feeling that we were being overtly successful at what we were doing and um, you know he ended up representing himself in some in some court cases where the judge was like your lawyers aren't doing a great job of you know selling your case and then he actually, um, I think his record—he never really lost a, a court case. But again, he never went into a case that he didn't feel like that he was being um, unjustly served. And so that was also really quite inspiring. And, and one of the actual—I um, guess it's like a family heirloom now—is like a painting that's up on the wall, which was a, from a settlement from a famous Australian artist that was basically jealous that you know business was going so well and tried to set up shop and stop selling um, merchandise to us. So that's that's almost like a uh, for me a bit of inspiration about just the. Again, optional spirit, but also a very principled guy that always, um, you know, looked after everyone else and was very giving. And that's, yeah. um, you, know, that, you know, I hold dear as a bit of a, uh, you know, uh, a relic that's kind of traveled with me around the world as well. That's a fantastic story. You're
0: definitely a, a, a connector, you know, that um, brings people together. And I can see how it, it sounds like you got a lot of that from your dad.
1: Yeah, I think all these things are, are really good. Um, uh, Community building exercises, where it, I think even as a as a society, it's just the most valuable thing, right? And again, technology is a, a big enabler of that. And um, I think personally, again, it's maybe just a, a personality trait that um, has been a common thread, like some of the other things I mentioned, that uh, yeah. I, I enjoy and, and find valuable. And hopefully, um, you know, rising tide kind of lifts uh, all boats. With whether it's you know the global legal tech report, Alta, um, you know, we can dig into that stuff later, but hopefully. These are initiatives that, uh, for, um, especially with things that we're working on with legal aid, um, and that's yeah. uh, you know hopefully I was able to learn uh, quite early on that that I get more value, and I think the world gets more value from from giving. And I went to Burning Man recently this last uh, this past year, <laughs> and, and that was um, how was that. Reinforced yeah. That was incredible. I think it was just a lot of things. I've been trying to go for 15 years where I met one of the, the organizers many years ago on a remote island in, in Thailand during like a, a 10 day fast. And he showed me these wild photos back when he actually pulled out real photos. And um, I was like, wow, this is like a whole other world. But I think what, again, drew me to it more, and there's lots of legal techies I've realized since that were out there, um, which we're going to try and connect uh, this year. But it was more about you can do all the things that you do out there uh, anywhere and anytime. But it was really about these found, founding principles that they really laid this foundation for, I think, people to be uh, a, a better version or the best version of themselves. And just being in an environment that you feel that you're comfortable doing that and you realize, well, hey, you can carry those principles outside. And, and you know, this past year was pretty fascinating. They had um, these world-renowned economists studying how this city just pops up with 70,000 people and there's not one bit of rubbish and it's fully serviced and they leave and there's no trace and there's no fight and all of these things. So they're really just, uh, I guess, a set of principles. Um, and one of those is that you know, it's not about barter, it's actually about giving without the expectation of something in return. Um, and so hopefully that's you know, something that you can, I can uh, carry uh, with me through uh, my life.
0: Mm. And should we all? <laughs> um, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I need to understand, like, how did, how did you get interested in legal? So making that transition from everything that we've just been talking about to a focus on the legal industry.
1: Yeah, it's a good question because I kind of pinch myself sometimes. I really spend a lot of time in some interesting circles, whether it's with some professors or lawyers or on panels or whatever it is. And kind of, I have to ask myself, how did I end up here? (laughs) What am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Um, Do I have a formal uh, education in terms of uh, legal uh, it was never really a focus, but uh, going back to um, the, I guess, the entrepreneurial journey. Part of that retail um, experience led to uh, being the first company in Australia to offer voice over IP. So that was where we saw retail as a bit of a sunset industry, and we saw technology becoming more prominent, and even just for retail, and you know, things were going on to online and on platforms. So we had this opportunity to uh, partner and, and and basically create a telecommunications company that my brother was more involved with in the day to day operations, but um, I was uh, always around and, and, and involved with in, in some sense. But essentially, that laid the foundation to be more immersed in technology. Through that, we actually started building platforms for other industries. Um, legal wasn't the initial focus, uh, mm-hmm. but through that journey, a lot of uh, our own, uh, I guess. Um, you could call it problems with working with lawyers in terms of being on the other side, being a consumer of legal services and realising how difficult it was, uh, how opaque it was, um, how expensive it was, all those things and just, you know, the, the troubles around collaborating across borders. And really that was maybe the first, uh, you know, pulling back the curtain somewhat to that industry. And there was also a lot, of, a lot of other lawyers coming to us that we were now working with and connected with that were saying, hey, can you help me with SEO? Can you help me uh, find leads? Ultimately, 80% of the market is solid practitioners. They're not going to marketing or business school necessarily. And they were trying to you know, cope with this new digital age. And so we saw a bit of that as well. And so kind of armed with that knowledge, we were like seeing you know, there's a bit of opportunity here to maybe create a platform layer for the legal industry. And we thought a place to start that could have some critical traction, uh, be lightweight, um, and it's proved that in a sense where we, we created a communication tool to connect lawyers and clients and that's uh you know we had, we've had over 2500 law firms sign up to that in across 100 countries so it's really it's and that's, le- that we, that's legaler, right yeah and that's that's a the best way to describe that is a secure online meeting tool that lets you basically schedule host, and archive the meeting all in one place so we kind of integrate with tools like clio and uh, you know we've, we're, we're talking to a bunch of other companies about integrating that technology into you know, directories and marketplaces so that's really a bit of a land and expand, I guess, strategy for us. Our, our broader thesis was always that a technology company will become the largest provider of legal services one day, and what does that look like? Uh, it's obviously a difficult uh, challenge where you've got US with different rules around fee splitting, uh, whatever it may be, that makes it really quite challenging. Which is why you probably haven't seen the Uber for law uh, just yet. It's it's happening, but it's quite fragmented. Um, and right. so that was always, I guess, the 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 broader vision and we really just really see that um, you know legal services are only serving a very small another population and there's a huge latent market there and I think technology is going to open that up
0: definitely I mean I I share that belief it's just a matter of when really and you know with the 50 jurisdictions you have in the United in the United States and you know, there's a lot going on with that. That's a whole other discussion.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And there's a different task force that are popping up. So you need it from both sides. You need, obviously, the industry to kind of shift. You need the consumers to demand stuff. And I think that's happening again. The legal industry just operates at a different cadence and um, you don't have to be Nostradamus to see where it's going. It's just like you said, it's a matter of um, uh, timing. And I think Bill Gross, who's one of the most successful Silicon Valley VCs, has a great TED talk, which is only like three or four minutes long, um, actually. And he basically analyzes two hundred companies and hundred of his own investments, hundred of you know the Ubers and Airbnbs, and timing was um, way more important than a like, team, funding, idea, um, and the technology. So I think you know, uh, going back to that, uh, it's just a matter of time.
0: Um, I, I believe I read that you you held an ICO for Legaler. Is that true? We
1: we actually did, and we the the. But given that we're in the legal industry, uh, given the uncertainty around all of uh, the landscape at that time, we actually uh, didn't. We're still, um, and again, we can dive deep into this as the conversation goes on. We're still building uh, a network uh, for the legal industry, a public blockchain um, that's permission. So basically operated by the legal industry. That is currently live with a developer testnet in three countries. We've got nodes across Sydney, uh, Japan, and the US. And so that's where we're kind of experimenting with the technology. But we're also, um, there'll still be a token, but we really thought long and hard about perverse uh, incentives that a lot of these other companies created. And again, just being in the legal industry specifically, uh, whether it's a security, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the. the There's a lot of um, poor precedent around that, and the SEC's got some ongoing battles. So we spent a lot of time actually looking out what we could do to actually create better incentives. Um, So a lot of these companies were uh, pre-mining, essentially, like creating a a token uh, pool, selling half of that to the public in a crowdfund, and then using the other half. So the network we're creating does the opposite. It starts off with zero tokens, uh, a bit more like uh, uh, maybe the Bitcoin network where they're, they're mining the tokens into existence. Uh, and what w- what we'll see here is that the tokens will be emitted over a period of time, both as the technology is uh, evolving, um, so there's not too much liquidity into the market, uh, but also we're not doing again a big bang uh, token sale. So we're, we've got a, uh, an equity based company. We're raising funds through that, and we've previously raised uh, funds through Thomson Reuters, which we'll be announcing as well. Um, and so we're we yeah, so we're pretty much um, thinking long and hard about creating. And blockchains are the ultimate incentive machine. So the, the good thing is you, you can you know, program rules through protocols. And so we're we're really uh, geared on how do we create better incentives for lawyers to do more pro bono work? How do we create more incentives for these legal services organizations to actually participate in the network? Um, how do we create incentives for law firms to be involved in governance and the future of the network? But again, doing all that uh, without a big bang and just, you know, now that we've sat back and been able to watch where the market's gone, it really is the early days. And we're, we're building... Um, early technology—it's a, <laughs> a good analogy—is like just having a, a hole in the ground. You could walk past that hole and go, "Oh, that's a you know, pretty nice hole in the ground, pretty useless." Uh, <laughs> or you could go, "That hole is actually uh, the early stages of this huge building, and we're laying the foundations, and something beautiful is going to magically appear there." So that's really um, a lot of right. the talk around blockchains. Is a lot of people don't get the, the um, uh, you know the, the future implications, and I'd love to chat with you about that as well, but. Um, it's it's really early days, so we're we're kind of digging the holes, putting a bunch of the early kind of you know frames in there, um, and the the rest is uh, going back to curiosity. It's pretty exciting to see what people are going to build.
0: Well, I think that's great, and I think it's also very smart because there was a lot of heat at you know behind a blockchain and ICOs and stuff. But as as we we both know, things have kind of come back to roost on that, and uh, so. Holding off on on you know raising money like that is probably a very smart move, and it sounds like you're doing it you're pl- you know you're doing it in a way that's much more organic and actually lends itself to growing that um, properly. You know, I want to ask you about Alta. I mentioned at the top, what is Alta and how did it get started?
1: Yeah, so the Australian Legal Technology Association again was quite an organic community building exercise where and Melbourne uh, mostly, uh, initially at least, um, Jody Baker from Zakia was was very um, uh, involved in the early conversations, James O'Dell, who was at Elevate Services, we really were like, you know what, there's no community, there's no real place to kind of get together, talk about the the, the, the pros and cons of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to build, and it's quite isolating. So we ended up having a, a, a few drinks, and those uh, drinks culminated in in something that was at the time, a lot bigger than ourselves. So it was, I think the first drinks was about eight founders. And we realized that it was almost a bit of a counseling session where we were talking about how hard legal tech was, how hard it was to sell legal tech, how hard it was to build. Uh, So really, I think we we all initially bonded over that. And we realized there needed to be like maybe a more unified body that could stand up for the industry and also have events. And so that's really where the, the association grew off the back of the first Two events that we hosted that were very successful. They were basically a demo day format where we had 16 startups get up on the stage, uh, present for eight minutes, and there was about two minutes of Q and A. But the audience was filled with everyone from law students to CIOs to barristers to um, you know, law firm um, CEOs. So it was really a, a unique format that you know someone could sit in the audience and see a cross section of the strain market in like you know just over an hour, um, and that was really a, a cool format that. I think, yeah, and just created some early uh, traction. And from there, there was um, an association, a website, uh, major sponsors, and then it really culminated in uh, Altacon the first year. So that was last year in, in May, there was a big conference that was sold out. And so what that, I think, did was set the the tone for some of these other pockets of innovation, um, you know, the UK, ASEAN, where inspired from what Alta kind of did, they actually ended up... Uh, creating um well matt pennington created the uk lta eric chin helped launch ASEAN legal tech and now there's alinta the, the asia pack one um you know there's a bunch that have popped up in in africa new zealand's got uh, legal tech nz and so really this was uh, i think a groundswell both showing the interest in legal innovation and uh, legal tech innovation uh, but also that there needed to be more formal communities around this and what What role they serve is really, um, it's quite fast. It's, you know, educating people towards what Legal Tech's out there, how to build it, and then actually using it. So that is really the founding pillars of of what Alta stands for. And then they have member meetups. uh, They communicate, um, you know, on communication tools in terms of Slack and and, um, getting together in in different cities. Uh, We've created a newer concept off the back of that called um, the Sandbox Series where it was just an evolution of the demo days where instead of just having someone up on a stage, kind of presenting, now you have um, people come into um, a room and they're all getting armed with uh, the latest software, whether it's a demo instance um, or or just some type of prototype. They actually can get to use the technology with that actual founder or CEO and go through what technology is like, ask questions, and then go back to their, um, again, whether it's a law firm or um, whether they're a consultant, to go back armed with some more information, and a bit more nitty-gritty detail, uh, get to know the company, I think that's also again a, a unique concept that will become a bit part of the course soon. We're actually seeing both the demo days and the sandbox series being employed by other associations. So it's great; it's created a, a bit of a movement, uh, which again has culminated in in, um, in this global legal tech report, which you can chat about as well. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> well, it's now become the uh, the largest legal tech uh, initiative ever uh, attempted. So based off the back of that, going back to the the, the threads we were talking about community building, we've uh, parted with 14 uh, of, I guess, the peak representative bodies. So these legal tech associations are it's a bit of an alphabet soup. So um, all the acronyms from ILTA to ELTA, um, again, Dutch <laughs> legal tech, Swiss legal tech, uh, you name it, taking law, Israel, um, uh-huh. all across Asia. So we brought together all of those associations. Um, and what was missing in the market was basically uh, a vendor side report. There's a lot of research um, that you'll see. What legal, uh, what legal tech law firms are using. But what you don't necessarily see is like, stuff about, just take legal for example, what's the gender diversity? What's the underlying tech stack? What's the next market that you wanna go into? What's the age of the founders? Are they lawyers by background? Are they using AI? What type of AI? And so um, what you start really seeing is some really interesting data that's never been done before. Again, what are the business models? Um, how much have they raised? And so uh, in the background, we've got some major partners involved uh, from Baker McKenzie, uh, KPMG, Macquarie Bank, the UK Law Society. And so uh, these partners are helping sponsor the research, but also we've indexed about, I think at last count, it was about 3,750 legal tech companies. Uh, First of all, that's way more than I ever thought existed. But yeah. And And so uh, what that's also lending itself to is a directory. So uh, off the back of the report, we're creating the global legal tech directory, which is indexing all these companies. And so, um, as you can see, it's a very uh, expansive exercise, but it's also a great community exercise. And again, going back to the rising tide lifting all boats, now these associations can act as a backstop to help some of these initiatives come to light. So we're already seeing, I think that average... Uh, If you take uh, a cross-section, 57% of founders that are setting up these legal tech companies are over 40. You're realizing, okay, these are ex-lawyers, you know, jumping out of either a law firm or another role. And so instantly you can see with that data, these associations should be helping foster uh, maybe a landing pad for these founders to get started and uh, you know, over half of these um, companies are all solos. So you know that there's these you know 40 something uh, solos uh, out there trying to change the world and they need support, they need funding, they need mentorship and they need access to resources. So again, just an early example of, of what that data um, can, can do. Um, and it's quite exciting seeing it all come to life. And so we're, we're basically, uh, the first report launches uh, on the 7th of April in Australia, and there'll be a big launch event. But then there's actually a report for every jurisdiction. So we're partnering with these associations, and they're pushing out the survey to their members. And the members that do um, the survey, the legal tech companies, they get the survey for free in terms of their local jurisdiction. And then we basically piggyback all the major events. So the uh, at Iltacon, the US report will drop uh, during Legal Geek and Legal Innovators in the UK in October. There'll be a UK report, and and you know you go down down the list. And that will all culminate in the global legal tech report, which will be basically um, a summary of all these insights aggregating all that data. And that's essentially the global legal tech report, right? So that's the final output. And that's going to be hopefully a, a yearly exercise that we kind of reflect back on and go, okay, this is what's happened now. And I think this first year of data is going to be interesting. But over time, it's going to be really interesting to see how the markets evolve, what type of fundings come in, how the business models change, what tech's being used. And again, one of the early bits of research that came out um an australasian lawyer did an article about this was that ai i think was only used in like four percent of the companies that were um actually doing the survey and so it was actually mm-hmm. decent cross so australia as a market was 144 companies that we actually identified um almost half of those did the survey so that's actually a pretty decent number um but you can also already see okay so ai um is uh going to be I think underpinning all of these companies in the next five years but right now it's not really a big part of what they're building or what they're employing uh, there might be other tools they're kind of you know dovetailing that probably leverage AI in some way um, you know they might not even know in the, the, the gmails <laughs> using AI to write their emails these days which is pretty scary yeah. but um, you know <laughs> more, more broadly um, you know it, it's giving some great insights into um, this really emerging market so it's pretty exciting.
0: I think that's fantastic. I can't, I really can't wait to dig into those uh, numbers and that data. I, I, I wasn't aware that there was over 3,000, you know, legal tech startups. The, the number that I had seen was more like in the mid thousands, like 1500 or something like that. Yeah, that's it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. Like we've had, um, and again, just because of the groundswell that this has created, like we've had, um, you know, um, people reach out just from uh, the different regions. And so even from Russia, there was 150 companies that um, they highlighted uh, out of Russia, so mm-hmm. that's just you know, and and the surrounding area. But that's just something that no one's really keeping track of or keeping a real close eye on. And then I think you know, this report will be useful for probably three or four different cross sections of the market. One is the law firms; they can see what tech you know they can be employing. They can see maybe what type of people they should be hiring internally to actually be um, you know implementing this tech what type of roles you know, these, I guess, legal engineers are kind of um, or, or specialties that, that they need to have up their sleeve. VCs and PE firms, you know, seeing this as a, hopefully again, it creates a bit of a beacon to, to go, no, here's a bit of activity. It's really emerging. Get some um, more data on the board for, for funding. And then also mm-hmm. just even consultants and the, the, the companies themselves. So the actual legal tech companies can, can go, oh, you know what, there's actually 500 other um, companies in this vertical doing something similar. Maybe, I'll try and produce a different solution. Maybe I'll try and partner with these guys. Maybe there's an API I can use. So really, it's just unearthing um, what's kind of out there that I think is going to become a really valuable resource uh, over time.
0: How do you stay motivated with so many interests? I mean, all of these sound amazing and exhausting. Um, how do you balance everything?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that, that's a really good question. And, and quite frankly, something um, you know that's hard to do. So right now, it feels like there's probably four four startups in my life, <laughs> One, apart, apart from my own life. Um, Alta, I've, I've stepped down as, as president and, and Jody Baker's uh, taking the helm there and she's doing an amazing job and then we'll we'll rotate that role so there's you know fresh blood but also some continuity in terms of the surrounding members. Um, this global legal tech report, I think what was probably something I did from the start that was uh, maybe smart was get the best people in the field uh, on board and a lot of these early conversations about bring the report to life were with Eric Chin, who's um, got Alpha Creates, the consulting company. So so actually working with those people is actually motivating. Um, they're, they're really passionate about what they're doing, but they're also really taking care of, I guess, their backyard. So uh, Eric and Graham Grovem from Alpha Creates are doing a lot of the, the underlying research. Um, mm-hmm. and we've got Toro, Digital. also Paul Evans has done a great job and he's building um, a lot of the digital aspects of this and we've got um, I think what's been the secret source of Alta is the management company Finehouse, uh, Nikki Hauser and Connie Feinstone there. They've they've actually, what I realized is a lot of these associations pop up in other jurisdictions but they don't have someone, because um, you know, Alta's uh, it's it's really um, energizing in the sense that it's, it's a bunch of uh, legal techies themselves that are running this organization but the the, the, the lubrication, the, the the thing that keeps people honest is really uh, this management group in the background. I think that was the smartest thing we did from the start. You know, if we've got a major event, they're the ones in the background helping us bring this to life. So really, um, I think I get energy from the people around me, uh, find inspiration there. But also, um, going back to the curiosity thing, like if you just take the global legal tech report, um, nothing, you know, nothing of this scale has ever been done in terms of just a community building exercise. Um, and part of what we want to do is have, uh, events and surveys, and also uh, webinars and, um, you know, community building in that sense around these reports. So we can talk about, hey, a company that's going from Australia into Europe, what do they need to know about GDPR? Talk about global standards in terms of uh, building tech, um, you know, going into emerging markets. And so there's really, um, I think, they all tie into each other. Um, you know, alta has been an amazing platform for legal tech companies in Australia. And again, when we first started, we we're like, oh, it'd be great if there was like, Twenty members. I think there's close to eighty now major companies that have, have, have joined, and just from that um, you know initial conversation, uh, those those companies have, have really smashed it. They're like uh, you know, Zaki is doing amazingly. Pursuit uh, by Jim Clusis, which is an in-house council kind of a panel um, a law firm marketplace. They're um, you know I think raising a Series B now. Um, Dockyard they've just gone public in the Australian market. So really, for a small country, we're, we're, we're punching above our weight. And and I think also mm-hmm. one thing that i got personal, um, uh, I guess, satisfaction from, from just knowing the company uh, is the story of Anika, which, um, you know, they're a non-for-profit and a legal tech company. They came to the very first, a great bunch of young you know, law students at the time. Now they're working in major law firms and also doing a uh, startup full-time as well. They came to the first demo day that Alta had, and they were inspired to basically... You know, they're like, wow, there's this thing called Legal Tech. And they uh, ended up entering into the Global Legal um, uh, Hackathon at the time. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to be asked to mentor them. And they got to the finals. Uh, they should have won. But anyway, they um, they ended up uh, pitching. Uh, I think it was Legal Geek came to Sydney and Melbourne. And we, we hosted them in, in Australia. And we had a, a pitch off. And the winners won um, a trip to the UK to actually attend uh, Legal Geek. So Annika won that. And they got to present free in the uk and off the back of that they got a government grant and now the you know the alticon came around and they had a stand there so it was really from like uh you know in one year's time just looking at alta as an ecosystem and a platform for for you know emerging technology and is and fostering legal tech that was like an end-to-end story that's really uh inspiring and again great bunch of young people but hopefully having a community um help guide uh that company and bring it to life so i think that's again going back to um the common threads in all of the things that we're doing it's really these network effects that these communities just become more and more powerful with um uh, the, the more people that are interested in kind of taking it forward
0: wow definitely i, I see that and that's that's a great success story um mm-hmm. let me ask you about this let, let's get into the the blockchain aspects the your forte um because i know that some people that might be listening you know are still fuzzy on on that whole business of blockchain and what it means and why it might be important and all that so let's just laser focus on a few th- things there um the first one is just kind of obvious like for people that aren't familiar with it what is blockchain and what is the place for blockchain and legal
1: yeah so um i'll start with the what is blockchain i mean you you, you ask 10 dif- different people and you get 10 answers so um you know there's some more technical ways to um, describe it, but essentially it's a data, a blockchain is just a database of everything that's ever happened, um, that everyone has a copy of and no one party controls. So uh, think of it as a network of computers all plugged into each other. And um, let's use the analogy of maybe a a Google sheet, like a spreadsheet. Um, When you wanna add a new entry into this uh, database, you propose it to the group that you're running the network with, and then everyone decides on whether that uh, bit of information is truthful, just by consensus. So if a lot of people in the network go, hey, um, Tom sent Stevie's, you know, 10 bucks and they can keep track of that on that database. Well, they'll add that as a new item. And so we can keep track of that, you know, $10 that's come to me. But then changing that becomes very difficult. So it's basically an append only database so we can add new information to it and then kind of going back and trying to change that information is really hard because everybody has a copy of it. You can't, one party can't necessarily go and change that. So really the the key breakthrough that that delivered, and this this goes back to the Satoshi Nakamoto uh, white paper for Bitcoin, it was the first time we ever had digital scarcity. So, um, you know, information on the internet is always quite ubiquitous. You can send data around. Um, Having something that's one of a kind becomes really hard. And that's why no one had been able to create this type of digital currency, whether it's a cryptocurrency or just, you know, there's been many attempts over time because ultimately there was one person in charge of that ledger. Um, and if you got one person in charge of it, it's a bit like the central bank, right? They can just keep printing money and you have uh, all types of things that can go wrong. So what really was solved was a double spending problem. And again, with the Bitcoin network going live, it was the first time we actually had one of something digitally that you could actually verify. And that's still, again, in, in the 10 years that's been in existence, hasn't failed. And then it got a little bit more exciting when um, people realized that now, now that you've got this decentralized network, infrastructure that no one person's in charge of, they're like, hey, you could actually deploy code to that. Um, And then you can actually, you know, give if this, then that kind of um, uh, computer executable um, uh, information. And that became really exciting because that created basically smart contracts. Again, it it created this programmable value, like this way of actually giving um, rights and obligations and instructions to this bit of digital scarcity. But again, the the, the real uh, key innovation was that no one party was in charge of. And I think that's when you when you go back to it and you look at across history, um, like ledgers, whether it's accounting ledgers, history ledgers, they've always been controlled by some type of central authority. And so, if you you know take away all the fluff and ICOs and whatever you want to, you know, tokens and all that stuff, basically, uh, we've got now for the first time in history, and again, it's been in existence for about ten years a shared ledger uh, or memory system for society that um, everyone can participate in. And It becomes like this, going back to the hole in the ground. We've got yeah. the hole. It's infrastructure that everyone can participate in. No one can shut it down. It's censorship-proof. It's unregulated for good reason, but then you have on-ramps and off-ramps that become regulated. So that's where it's it's really changing. Um, and again, I'll, I'll, again, um, get into why it's important for legal industry, but that's, I think, for a societal uh, shift it's quite a monumental one because we're, we're changing the nature of trust. Like the the initial specs of when we create the internet really, I mean, it was, it was basically machines talk, talking to each other. There was no trust protocol and there was no money protocol. Like we hadn't, Again, going back to the voice over IP example I gave you, we had all of that stuff, but no one had really cracked it. And so it's really um, a big shift in how we trust each other. And I think that's the... The, the one thing that everyone should be paying attention to, because if you go back to um, uh, society, when that nature of trust has changed, uh, everything around it's changed. Because like trust is basically, you know, a, a mechanism for removing doubt and uncertainty, and we've used that over history to actually organize society. Whether it's basically going back to the start of you know um, tribes and families, we had like kinship and different protocols to trust each other, and even language is one of those. Like you trust someone by the way they spoke and, and, and recognizing that. And so if something went wrong back in the day, we just had you know, localized trust. So we kind of, you know, could bash each other over the head with a woolly mammoth task. And that's how we resolve problems. That's how we enforce trust.
0: But Some then, people still you know, do.
1: They still do. Yes, yeah, they still work. Um, we're not talking about Trump supporters today. all right? But basically, um, if you go to, um, uh, you know, if you go to the next phase of that, we, and especially for lawyers, this is where, you know, Hammurabi's code, you, you had these clay tablets where for the first time we were like, okay, we need a third party because we want to memorialize our relationship and create this, uh, I guess, institutionalized trust that no in the relationship is kind of controlling. And that's where society was able to scale. Like we had uh, Mesopotamia, all these you know early cities that had 50,000 people all of a sudden living together um, and they could keep track of what they owed each other. And so that really changed the nature of trust. We had institutional trust. Um, again, whether it's like governments... Uh, intermediaries, religion. These were like things that we uh, used as trust mechanisms to, to basically group large pe- uh, amounts of people together to actually um, act on something. And then now you've got this new paradigm where, again, uh, you've opened this door to this network, which is decentralized, um, but no one is in charge of. So going back to the example, Tom, where I want to send you some money, I can do that directly in a peer-to-peer fashion. So we've almost gone back to localized trust, but we're using a distributed form of um, you know uh, infrastructure underneath. Um, and that's whether you want to call it distributed or, or decentralized trust. It's a new way of, of doing stuff. And you're starting to see examples of that just in small ways. Like when um, Rachel Botsman talks about this stuff really well, when you go to Airbnb now, um, you probably leave it in a better state than you do than your hotel. Because in your hotel, you have this different trust framework in mind where it's like, no one's going to give you a review. No one's going to care how you left the, you know, the bed. But when you do your Airbnb, you've got this review. And all of a sudden, you're held accountable in this distributed uh, manner. And again, you think about the way your actions change. Small example, that's how, um, you know, you see that nature of trust changing and the way people act changing. Uber, you know, like you could throw it in the back of a taxi and I not really care before. But now, um, you know, that changes with this distributed nature of, of, of trust. So technology is creating this new uh, foundation for, um, again, a, a really fundamental part of how we interact as, as, as society and, and as humans. And I think that's really what's uh, quite exciting before you actually get into the nature of contracts changing. Well, let me
0: ask you this uh, to kind of dovetail it with legal. If you were to fill in the blank, in the future, blockchain will be used in the law for dot,
1: dot, dot. Like, how would you fill that in? Oh, how long How long do you have? No, um, that's, that's <laughs> uh, really good. Again, I think everyone still sits around and goes, what are the use cases? What are the use cases? Like, you know, who's doing stuff? And, um, you know, we were on a panel uh, during legal week, um, just here recently in New York with uh, Aaron Wright, who's building OpenLaw, Herman Shadab, who's who's, um, building Clause. Again, two critical companies in this early infrastructure. And really everyone just wants to know what are these early examples. So um, I think before you get into just, you know, specific use cases, if you go back, so we've got trust that's changing, but also that clay tablet, right? That that had more technology baked into it quite literally than uh, a contract does now. Um, And most contracts still sit in uh, law firm, uh, you know, archives, uh, still paper-based. And so we're really looking at the actual core commodity of the lawyer. So Tim Pullen from Thought River pulled out some good stats where um, they estimated 4 billion contracts are created every year, uh, 250 million of those out of the legal industry. And so just that alone is gonna be a monumental shift where as you're moving on to, you know, we're moving into a digital connected age where the internet is the, the new supply chain. Where all these contracts now need to be living in a digital format, and again, as a um, as a base for that, a blockchain network is a great thing because you've got you know parties basically making these digital promises. So going back to what a smart contract is, essentially a digital promise that you can automate, and so rights, obligations, you know, responsibilities, all these things, and so they're going to start living on uh, these networks and and apps like. Um, uh, because you're basically you're creating rules around how to move assets around. So apps like Clause, OpenLaw, they're going to become like this new type of browser into that world. And going back to, again, the digital scarcity thing, whether it's a property transaction, you you only want one property title to exist for your property because you're selling that and it's of, of value. So it's no point having right. a paper database that anyone can replicate that quite easily. So, again, you can see the value in not so much. A lot of the focus right now is people going, oh, you can save, you know, like a lot of the early apps. are. Um, uh, cryptocurrencies and people are just really focused on saving a couple bucks for for sending money across the world. The real the real benefits going to come from applications, businesses, programming uh, rules. So they call them protocols, and saving billions and millions of dollars around automation um, and and that type of thing. So I think that's something that again we're still coming to terms with. We just built the early infrastructure. People are you know starting to to find new business models. You got a billion dollars already locked up in decentralized finance. So really getting back to what the legal industry can do, our thesis is, you know, as a company, and this is the reason we're building um, the the actual network, is that every aspect of the legal industry is going to be underpinned by blockchain technology because it's the industry, first of all, built on trust. So the the degree that we we trust each other and how we manage those trusted relationships is often, most often mediated by lawyers. So talking about that nature of uh, trust changing and contracts, well, the role of the lawyers is going to slowly change and they need to be familiar with this stuff. And so um, you know, building off the back of that, then you start going, okay, we've got this new internet. Okay, so we've got this new uh, blockchain network that essentially um, is just better than the existing Web 2.0 because what it allows is for users to own their data, to own their identity and to own their money. So at a base level, it's just a far superior network and people are just starting to realize this. And then if you take a simple use case like identity and, and, and just look at the legal industry and go, okay, what, does, what role does identity play? Well. KYC is the, the first one, uh, knowing who someone is. Uh, AML, like Australia, uh, that they're introducing new anti-money laundering uh, acts where you know, law firms now, there's a strong focus on them actually uh, vetting people more because they realize that you know, a lot of the shuffling of uh, funds was happening through these vehicles. And so um, you know online reviews, if you take, again, identity uh, for a lawyer, 80%, again, freelance lawyers, solo practitioners, making up the broader part of the market. They might operate on different online platforms, but essentially uh, identity is a siloed thing right now where a centralized authority um, attests to um, your um, identity and owns all the data around that. What a blockchain allows you to do is actually, because of the decentralized nature of it, and owning the private key and, and um, and having a public key, which is basically similar to your email. So it's like a... You know how emails are a bit like having a mailbox. Someone can stuff stuff in the front of it. It's all open to everyone, but you've got the key to open stuff at the back. The same way I own my Bitcoins and no one else can take them off me on a decentralized network. That's again, it's not a, 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 a blockchain technology itself, it's, it's public and private key cryptography, but that really um, made this technology possible. So now you could be a lawyer and you could own your identity. Um, you can be a client and own your identity and move across the internet so you could take all your reviews with you. Um, example is like if you're in uh, Lyft and you're driving and you've been there for five years, now you want to go to Uber, the day you start in Uber, you're a zero. You've got no reviews. So imagine that you have a, um, a single point of, of truth for your identity. You can attach your social media accounts. You can get your law degree uh, issued to you on, on a um, on a blockchain. So there's one version of that. You own that. You can share that around. So really, um, again, just this, this is the early bits of the infrastructure. But now that you've got identity, imagine you sign um, an electronic signature. So, first of all, we can verify you better. But then going back to um, having one of that document, you don't want to have 10 versions of a document you just executed. You want to have one version of that. And if anything ever goes wrong in the future, you want to refer back to that, um, whether it's the hash or that actual document that's been verified and go, okay, this clause didn't exist four years ago. What's it doing here? So, really, you know, that's still dealing with the core commodity. But then you got things popping up now like uh, uh, projects like Kleros and Jewel where they've created courts. And these are like virtual courts. But again, because you've got this digital scarcity, you can kind of distribute assets. You can have a panel of arbiters vote for, um, and again, verify those votes, vote for who should, uh, you know, um, win a particular case. Um, And you'll see examples like this popping up and taking the pressure off, uh, you know, small claims courts because the cost of actually, you know, going to one of these courts will be far cheaper in the future. Again, early stuff, quite experimental, but you can see where it's kind of going. Um, and that's before you even get to, you know, like simple things like trust accounting, right? Right now you're paying uh, interest um, to have a third party look after funds that you essentially, um, you know, could put into a smart contract. And again, right now it seems like a foreign uh, concept, but then uh, as we have more and more digital currency, as we have more and more of this infrastructure, um, you know, and companies like Facebook doing Libra, um, these major companies are going to help with that infrastructure. Everyone's going to have these wallets and they'll just be, um similar to having an app on your iPhone. Um, and and wallet, these digital wallets are going to become the new browsers because you can sign transactions, you can verify your identity. So really um, as an underpinning uh, infrastructure, uh, you can think of anything that needs to be digitally scarce and it's going to be sitting on a blockchain, property titles, um, auditing and compliancing. You know, when you send a transaction, uh, the settlement and that transaction happening are, are one and the same. So you really don't need so much uh, auditing overhead uh, financial services. There's lots of lending products um, that are out there right now. Uh, you can imagine. Um, you know, again, there's a billion dollars locked up on Ethereum in, in decentralized finance, where people are creating lending products, earning interest for staking tokens, and as that world opens up, starts seeing new business models. Um, Aaron Aaron Wright from um, OpenLaw has launched um, Allow, which is uh, basically a legal autonomous organization, which is. A V two point like a new and improved version of the, the DAO, which was the initial one that got hacked on Ethereum back in 2016, which essentially was a hedge fund. Uh, but people that own the tokens can actually vote for which uh projects the hedge fund uh participates in, and then they can earn interest uh or uh you know basically uh dividends based on what that fund uh does and how it performs. So again, that was a security, they realized that maybe too late. But um, you know, there's these new types of business models. So again, imagine you applied that, and this is something that we're fascinated uh, by, is uh, to a, a public interest litigation fund that the people could vote for you know, where that money went and they could see the outcome, and they could see uh, um, you know, transparent, auditable ledgers of where, where those funds are gone, what the impacts mean. Right. And um, you know, so that's really uh, a lot of the early use cases, but I'd probably say our key focus uh, as legaler, uh, we're by by uh, the world going more and more towards peer-to-peer transactions. Again, uh, any transaction you do, especially online, you end up paying a third party somewhat of a trust tax, whether that's PayPal to send money, uh, whether that's, again, a, a company to do some KYC, whether that's dispute resolution. You always have a, a baked-in fee to, uh, you know, Airbnb takes 30% of every transaction. but They don't really provide 30% of value every time. So... Um, blockchain technology allows us to do is, is again, re-enter this world of peer-to-peer transactions like we did when we were in localised uh, tribes. Um, and that just makes things cheaper, more efficient, uh, more easily verifiable, and, again, creates a new business models. So we're really um, uh, keen on creating new uh, services that can actually uh, be just more efficient and 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 where once our maybe uh, North Star was to be an intermediary is actually to build the intermediary infrastructure so we don't have to be one. Um, and that's quite fascinating. So I'm very, very excited about some of the um, developments. That Again, there's a growing movement. There's Origin Protocol in other industries that they're kind of building P2P marketplaces. That, um, you know, you can trust the person on the other side and you have, uh, a, 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 I guess, a bunch of different means to actually, uh, if something goes wrong, to um, have some type of resolution that, you know, you, you end up paying less for every transaction. Wow. I mean... It's. It sounds to me like the the
0: applications of, of blockchain are vast. The philosophical underpinning of it of having you know creating scarcity and having a, a method by which everyone can share information that they know is valid. I mean, it, it has a lot of implications to it. <laughs> so no, it, yeah,
1: it's it, it, it touches everything because that's why this. I mean, for me, why it's so fascinating because it, you come from it uh, from very from every different type of angle, you can come from, from the access to justice angle because you can see the benefit that this could provide. You can, you can see um, uh, maybe just from a philosophical perspective, you can see how um, society can, can, you know, if the, if, the, if Elon's going to, um, to Mars, I think it'd be silly not to include just a blockchain based infrastructure from day one. So you could have uh, clear governance and voting and all that type of stuff done transparently, but you also have game theory. So there's, how do you incentivize people Um, in the best way to interact in these networks. And again, that's what these tokens do, right? Whether it's incentivizing someone to mine tokens uh, in terms of Bitcoin to keep the network secure, whether it's like um, something that we're doing is, you know, having uh, reputational tokens for lawyers that can um, do more and more access to justice work and pro bono uh, legal work and then be rewarded for that. So really, it's, it's endless. And I think that's where it's exciting now where... Um, you can already see the early infrastructure has been laid. But now there's so many, um, I think Ethereum has four times more developers than every other network. You can see just every day there's a new business model popping up and going, wow, we never thought of that. I think that's the exciting part of having a somewhat new and unregulated uh, part of the industry pop up because all these really talented people have this public infrastructure and, and these open source protocols they can all work across um, around the world. And it's created a movement um, going back to the network effects around um, you know community And that's really powerful. So um, I'm I'm really excited to see again what this public infrastructure um, can deliver. And and again, going back to how we think about it, we're creating a network that's publicly verifiable so anyone can transact. But the actual nodes that are involved in consensus, um, the ones kind of uh, earning uh, crypto for for maintaining the network, we want those to be legal services organizations, we want those to be technology companies, law firms, so they can all participate um, in the governance. That's a really important part of these networks. Um, And having an industry specific one, we want um, the the future of this um, network to be, because it's going to be constantly evolving from just the governance to the technology, um, the the members, and and we do that in a very unique way. So we've got these uh, two types of nodes, supreme nodes and district nodes, I guess, following the court hierarchy. And the supreme nodes are there because of the access to justice work they're doing. And we keep track of that. We call it proof of impact by, um, you know, in some of these new services that we're, we're um, launching, the good deeds, whether it's pro bono um, or just other contributions to the community that, that law firms, legal services organisations, lawyers are doing. And that's really, again, broader uh, conversation around um, amplifying uh, the, the good work lawyers do because not every other industry is obliged to do pro bono work. Um, and, and also rewarding uh, them for, for that work by uh, where they participate in this network. So again, we're creating this uh, ecosystem where everyone's incentivized to do more and more uh, pro bono work and then amplify that. And then they're, they're justly rewarded for that and, and have a voice in the future of the network. So that's really something, I guess, quite unique about what legalers uh, network is. What's a place on your bucket list that you haven't been to that you'd like to go to and why?
0: Ooh, that's a tricky one. And um, that might, might be tricky because you've been in almost everywhere.
1: <laughs> no, but I've been to a lot of places. Again, like uh, I've, I've lived in, um, I'm struggling with the New York winter because I've never lived uh, in a real winter. I've, I've, the tennis stuff took me around the world and I was based in Florida. Then I lived in Spain for a part of that in Barcelona. Uh, then I lived in Thailand for um, uh, in both in the islands and also in Bangkok. I uh, lived <clears> in Gold <throat> Coast, which is like you know, Australia's version of, of Florida. And now... Now New York and obviously Sydney and so um, the the one thing that for me I think is is kind of calling me a bit is to actually uh, and I've been there before but I haven't been there in 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 the way that I'd want to go now is actually to go back to um, Iran so I've been I've been there maybe uh, I think three times but the last time I was there was eleven so that's you know twenty seven years ago the world's changed a lot since then yeah. obviously to the outside world there's a lot of the, the um, uh, Political, um, you know, whether it's embargoes from the US, there's there's always a bit of unrest in that sense, whether it's a government. But what's super fascinating is that it's one of the oldest cultures in, in the world. Like whether it's you know that region we've got Mesopotamia, Sumer, um, and there's just so much history. And I think as I get older, um, I, I really want to, you know, uh, reach back into that, and it's quite inspiring. But it's also uh, quite sad that I haven't actually been to some of those major places. When I was on these trips, it was more of a family trip and I haven't been to Perspolis Police and some of these, you know, Esfahan and Shiraz, where, you know, lots of uh, innovations were um, developed, lots of thought leadership, whether it was poetry, Rumi, spiritual stuff, um, you know, that evolved from that. And so I think um, that's something where, you know, generally, if I'm thinking of going somewhere it's, uh, right now to get away from the New York winter to get some sunshine, but, you know, something that's calling me a bit more and more, I'm just trying to work out how to do that because I'd love to go back with my um, my father. Um, yeah, that's pr- probably to go back and discover Persia, that region, and, and Iran, and, and potentially, you know, some of those areas around it, like um, I've never been to Egypt, so I'd love to see the pyramids, um, I've never been to Lebanon, which I've got a lot of friends in in Beirut. Um, again, there's a big the community in, in Australia, or, around those cultures. And so that's something that, that's really uh, fascinating to me. I a historical and cultural perspective and also just culinary, um, this amazing food and, and delights. Um, and, and you know what? The good thing is that every Westerner that I meet that goes to Iran, it blows their mind how hospitable everyone is, um, how there's this whole other culture that, again, is not really communicated very well, obviously, on TV. It's always look, looking like a war-torn country, but it's one of the most rich and diverse countries where you've got snow fields and then all of a sudden tulip fields and um, you know, uh, natural resources and pomegranates and dates and all these fresh fruit and, and, and fauna. So it's yeah. really um, a pretty fascinating uh, thing. and I think it's just growing culturally uh, for me as a um, uh, again, somewhere I really want to go back to and, and connect with.
0: Well, thank you, Stevie. I, I love getting to learn more about why blockchain should matter to lawyers and your entrepreneurial journey.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's been great speaking with you.
0: How can people follow uh, what you're up to and keep in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so Legala.com um, is our main website. We've got Legala HQ on Twitter. Uh, if you're interested in, in blockchain and you're a, a lawyer, we have uh, Blockchain for Law, which is a private network of uh, lawyers interested in this space. So it's Blockchain, F-O-R dot L-A-W, so Blockchain for Law. And, um, you know, obviously, there's the other initiatives. The Global Legal Tech Report is actually globallegaltechreport.com. Um, so there's a few, you know, places you can find us. Um, but myself, I'm uh, Gyasi um, on Twitter, so that's an easy one to find. All right, well, thank you,
0: Stevie, for being my guest today, and thank you all for listening to our podcast, uh, Blockchain for Law and Entrepreneur's Journey with Stevie Gyasi. Again, this is Tom Martin. I want to thank GLSA again for sponsoring. Remember, joining GLSA is just a good way for solos and small firms to increase their business. And you can check it out at glsaonline.org.